Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Again, thank you for being at the Institute. Uh, we'll talk about losing one's country. And I heard Jack uh, discussing France. I don't think most French lost their country, or they knew they lost their country. In fact, most of them were reconciled and pretty happy. My, um, uh, uh, my grandmother's youngest brother had just been wounded and at Narvik in Norway, fighting with the Allied Expeditionary Force. The Polish brigade was there too. And uh, the French refused for the Poles to disembark, including the wounded, in, um, in, in uh, a Scotland. And the British said, well, you should get off, at least the wounded. The French said, no, we need you on the front. The ships landed with the Poles, and the French capitulated the following day. My great, another great uncle of mine was there too. He was happy because he hitched, he and his company hitched a ride on a British destroyer. Um, it took him a long time to get to England because the British Navy caught a French submarine which wanted to surrender. So the British sort of lassoed it and told it to Great Britain. So. There were very, very few people in France who felt they lost their country. The communists, so much of the progressive left, was on standing orders from Moscow to sabotage the war effort because Stalin was Hitler's ally at that time. Um, I'm sorry, I'm raining on your parade, Jack. I just thought I would um, introduce some uh, comic relief before we spoke about serious thing. So the only people who actually cared were the Poles, who were left behind, and uh, the most of the reactionary French monarchists. They couldn't stand the Germans. The military basically, except for Oppos like de Gaulle, reconciled themselves. The British repatriated a bunch of French who had been evacuated to England. So France really, for the most part, reconciled itself and thought it switched to a winning side. François Mitterrand was with Jeunesse Française, which was a sort of a hardcore pro-German youth organization. In late '43, he decided to be a socialist and defected to the winning side yet again. A, France was at ease. My um, foster father, like the rest, member, uh, the rest of the members of my family that fought at Narvik, was dumped before the uh, uh, advancing German armies, and his battalion stole a train and raced to the south of France. They would stop to refuel. In each town they had to stop for supplies and fuel, each larger town, they would be denied assistance, so the Poles would say, okay, we'll stay and fight. And the French would immediately find uh, 
coal and whatever supplies were needed to get rid of the Paul's finally his um, his um, uh, uh, train was bombed and the battalion split up into companies then platoons then squads he was a cadet officer squad leader so with his squad he made it to uh, to so-called unoccupied France I wouldn't call it free France it was Vichy France uh, he made it to unoccupied France to the border and at the border he and his four friends were caught by the Germans uh, they were put on a cart with two German guards, sort of like a cart, two-wheel cart that took Jean d'Arc to be burned, to be delivered to a POW camp. But they jumped the guards, strangled them. There was no post-traumatic stress disorder in my home in California until he turned about 1991 or so, and he started remembering this. Uh, so they were able to escape to Marseille. His best friend, a, a cadet officer who was not an Arabic with him, but he fought in France with the Polish 1st Grenadier Division that eventually managed to cross into Switzerland. But his best friend, my uncle, step-uncle, Tadjo Ungar of New Jersey, late Tadjo Ungar, uh, managed to escape from uh, the disaster and also made it to Marseille, and, and my foster father and his buddies lived where? Who took him in? Whores, prostitutes, nobody wanted to have anything to do with them, but the prostitutes, so there was no end anytime, there, there were hard times at home in California, my foster mom would always bring up the brothel, <laughs> never mind, she was one year old at that time. <laughs> my foster father was 20, so he said the only non-prostitutes in France were prostitutes. Those are the only people who helped. And I have other family stories where uh, reactionary monarchists are on the same side as the hookers. <laughs> Everybody else was, oh, whatever. Or, yeah, great, let's have a national revolution under Hitler's guise. So, losing a country, I hate to sound like Foucault or Derrida maybe relative for some, not for me, but for some, yes. Uh, by the way, uh, my uh, step-uncle Thaddeus figured out a way to demobilize. They had no money, so they would go from one point to another, Vichy France, up and down the railroad line and demobilize and get paid. <laughs> so they could have money to live on. Yes. Um, eventually they stole a yacht to sail to Gibraltar, but nobody knew how to sail and they hit a storm. So they were shipwrecked in uh, Spain and put in a concentration camp. They were very furious because the Francoist forces accused them of being communists. And they were both, like all decent human beings should be anti-Nazi and anti-communists, so they were really upset. Uh, don't worry, my foster father made it out of the camp. Uh, arrived in Great Britain, fought in the 304 Royal Air Force's Polish wing, bombed U-boats, also no post-traumatic stress disorder. And he never had a very good opinion of um, the French. At any rate, in a way, I will continue talking about losing my country once and uh, or twice and 
gaining it once and will be related to the stories I have narrated because uh, I will uh, I will invoke the personal in addition to uh, the public. Losing a country physically does not translate automatically to losing a country mentally. And I will discuss this both on the personal and the public level. To lose a country means that it ceases to be yours. That's what it means. It also usually indicates that culture and civilization either depart radically from the cherished original, perhaps ideal, essence, or abandons it altogether. The country thus transforms itself or is transformed radically, so radically that it ceases to be ours. It's no longer ours. We can't recognize it. That's what losing the country means. Look at the Khmer culture. Fabulous. And there comes Pol Pot. Is this your Cambodia? Not anymore. Old people in my family, Germans, we have German relatives. When the Nazis appeared and eventually won power democratically, old people used to refer to them as brown Bolshevisten, brown Bolsheviks. Of course, young people said, hey, it's, it ain't that bad. Uh, Hitler's building freeways. Uh, Look, the military is growing, the economy is fantastic. And I'm not talking here about brainless, goose-stepping stormtroopers. I'm talking about Germany's elite, or old elite, traditional elite. The Fons und Zus. Now, some of them, who are our relatives, eventually put a bomb to blow Hitler up, I say, 15 years too late. They should have listened to their grandparents, who knew exactly <laughs> what was going on, who did not differentiate between the Bolsheviks and the Nazis. But you know, old people just mumble and bother everybody. When um, something this dramatic is happening, most of us don't recognize that this is indeed what's going on, that, that we're losing our country. Uh, so, to frame my story better, I'd like to tell you about um, Poland's history. Not the last 5,000 years, I already did that on the hill, but uh, so I won't talk about genetics and archaeology, etc., but about the medieval Piast kingdom, which, in fusion with, with, with Western Christendom, developed uh, in fusion with Western, between Western Christendom and Slavic ways 
developed uh, what emerged under the Yagyeon dynasty in its aftermath as, as the freest society in Europe, where they not only elected their king, they got tax breaks if the king demanded their presence uh, on a foreign war. Because they had a duty to defend their country. Also, there were no property qualifications for nobility. So, unlike in Germany, where everybody now is um, genetically a little bit <coughs> translucent, in uh, Poland, yeomanry or free farmers were ennobled because they fought. If you serve your country, it's even less than 40 acres and a mule. That's what makes the country lovely. Nobility meant you had your coat of arms and you could vote, but you had to fight, you had to serve. Sort of starship troopers, starting in late medieval times. <laughs> no property qualifications, about 10-15% of the population was noble. And they scorned the nobility of the West, they completely ignored the elites in the East, who were Mongols and slaves for them, because they had rights, not privileges, but rights as free people. And we're talking about early modern times. Imagine in 1436, the king and the parliament voted in a law called Neminem Captivabimus, that's habeus corpus. 150 years before habeus corpus. The Magna Carta was a joke. It would not be fulfilled until the glorious revolution. So it was a joke. The king, John Lachlan, wanted to calm the barons and the people, which he did. But everybody talks about the, ground, uh, the Magna Carta as if it were a big deal. No, the Glorious Revolution was a big deal. Meanwhile, in the center of Europe, in what became the Jagiellonian dynasty's Commonwealth, Respublica, they called themselves with elective kings and two-chamber parliament and checks and balances, they not only enjoyed Neminem Captivabimus, they had a little constitution called, in 1505, Nihil Novi. Nothing new without us about us. In America, that means no taxation without representation, except it was 1505. Incidentally, the franchise of 10 to 15% of the population was not matched anywhere in the world until Jacksonian democracy. The Brits came next in the 1830s before Marx. So in early modern Europe, in the middle, you have the United States of America. In 1573, upon hearing that Catholic fanatics massacred Protestants in Paris, the Parliament in Warsaw voted in a new law called Confederation of Warsaw, which uh, guaranteed freedom of religion not just to mainline Protestants, Calvinists, and Lutherans, but also to the so-called sects, including the anti-Trinitarian sects, the Brethren, or Sokinians, they called themselves. They were indigenous. Now, in Western Europe, there was a mandatory death penalty for rebaptizers. Not in the Commonwealth. While at it, 
The Confederation of Warsaw of 1573, the new law, guaranteed freedom of religion to Jews and Muslims. And they weren't joking. If you go to the Knesset, there's a picture on the wall, the Council of Four Lands. That's the first Jewish parliament. The Jews, Tatars, who were Muslims, Presbyterian Scots and Armenians had autonomy in the Commonwealth. That is, they had their own assemblies. Now, does that remind you about anything? Aside from the United States of America? I don't think so. Except that was in the 16th century. And it continued in a similar vein until the destruction of the Commonwealth. One of the factors contributing to the destruction was a constitutional device in the parliament called Liberum Veto. I freely disallow any deputy could stand up and interrupt the deliberations and lawmaking by shouting Liberum Veto. I freely disallow. The device has ancient roots from early medieval Poland where at local assemblies and dietines a minority of one was allowed to register its displeasure. It is extremely suicidal, but for about 300 years nobody abused it. Later, what Americans call big corporations, that is magnates, aristocrats, domestically, and foreign powers would bribe deputies. For instance, if the parliament was deliberating the same about the increase of the size of the Polish army, the Prussians or the Moscovites would pay, bribe a corrupt deputy to implode the parliament, shout liberum veto. Previously, the custom had been that if you disagreed with something uh, that the parliament was about to enact, you shouted liberum veto, the deputies would adjourn, hammer out a compromise, dude, what's your problem? They would hammer out a compromise and return to deliberations and everything would proceed smoothly. From the second half of the 17th century, that was no longer the case. Do you know any other stupid country that allows foreign lobbies in its capital? Why do you think they're Polish jokes? In 200 years we'll have American jokes. We are not the evil empire, we're the stupid empire. We're doing exactly what Poland used to do. Exactly everything including allowing liberty to turn into license, including uh, uh, allowing minorities to tyrannize us, minority of one. Yes, because there must be the mean, as Aristotle taught. Everything should be in the middle, in moderation, then you can have what the Commonwealth of Poland and Lithuania dominating the intermarium, the land between the Black and Baltic and Adriatic Seas, what they had for about 300 years. How old is the United States? Well, I think we're getting to that point. Or we will have to rethink our business. It'll be of interest for you to know that the founding fathers of the Commonwealth, the nobility, and the burghers who participated and others used to deliberate in Latin in the parliament because they modeled themselves upon the only thing they knew from history, which means the Roman Republic. You know what the 
founding fathers of the United States, right? They went back to the Republican roots, Rome before Athens. Yeah, yeah, they read uh, Enlightenment people, Locke, etc. But no, no, Rome. That's what the Commonwealth did too. Fortunately, the mighty powers of Mexico and Canada don't compare to the predatory uh, neighbors called Russia, Prussia, and Austria. Once the Commonwealth degenerated, its internal problems became exacerbated by its own folly of allowing to turn liberty into license. The predatory uh, neighbors pounced. First they fueled the internal anarchy of Poland, and then, then they sent in the troops. It went on for about a hundred years. Finally, in three partitions, the Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania was destroyed. But guess what lingered? Memory of freedom. That is what sustained us, my family in particular. We fought in every war and insurrection, not because a, someone paid us, but because we had collective memories of freedom. Also, whatever you want to say against the Tsar or the Kaiser, both of them actually, the Habsburgs and the Hohenzollerns, and the Third Roman Rose, those people, for the most part, respected private property. That is, if you did not rebel openly, they left you alone. And you could do on your estate whatever you wanted, on your farm. Yeah, eventually they'll try to Germanize you or Russify you, things that the Japanese would copy from them and impose on Korea. But in general, if you minded your own business, you could bring up your kids in your faith, they would be discriminated against, sure, and they wouldn't have opportunities that others would in most cases, except eventually in the Habsburg Empire. But you had your private property, so you could do what you wanted. Also, please do not apply the anachronistically the totalitarian paradigm. There was a kid who was sent to Siberia with his parents. His parents participated in a conspiracy to free Poland from Russia. His name was Józef Apoloniusz Nałęcz Korzeniowski. You know him as Joseph Conrad. So the mom's brother petitioned the Tsar and said, the kid never did anything to you. He's only 15. Does he have to be in Siberia with the parents? Sure, sure, the parents are we're rebels. I get it, you get to punish them. But what about the kid? In fact, I have a scholarship lined up for him to send him to Switzerland. And Joseph Conrad went to Switzerland. Hence, you know him as Joseph Conrad. Imagine anything like this under Hitler or Stalin, people who hated private property, because private property translates into freedom. That's why it was vouchsafed in the, in the Commonwealth. So, there were long periods of hard work. 
under the three empires. Mentality changed to the point where if the Tsar confiscates us, then what do we do? Well, we become intelligentsia. So in not just my family, but in other families too, it eventually those who survived, those who returned from Siberia, didn't perish on the battlefield, they were not hanged, turned from farmers into intelligentsia. So, including the women, doctors, architects, lawyers, free professions. Why? Because the evil ones can't take away what's in your brain. Kapita is the word from which the word capitalism derives. Capitalism, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, is not about the money, it's about the head. Education is the most important. Unless they put a bullet in my head, they can't take it away. It's with us. That is the most valuable gift you can receive. All the memories of the old Commonwealth, the memories of recent struggles in the 19th century, and the ethos of studying meshed nicely with the custom to serve. Serve a cause that is greater than ourselves. ourselves. Some Poles, many actually, of the elite, and by this I don't mean the moneyed people, I mean the elite of service, believed in something called for your freedom and ours. So you could find them anywhere, from Cuba to Kamchatka. Oh yes, there was a guy who was sent to Siberia, his name was Benyovsky, kidnapped a ship, uh, oh, seduced the governor, the Russian governor's daughter, kidnapped a ship and with his bodies escaped through Japan. Imagine that the Japanese didn't kill him and they used to kill everybody who landed. But they let him land, re replenish and just... He sailed to Madagascar, which he freed from the French domination. <laughs> Why? Because the Count Benovsky took himself seriously. Have you ever asked yourselves why um, the founder of West Point, uh, chief engineer, U.S. Continental Army, Thaddeus Kosciuszko, came here? What about Kazimierz Pulaski, the founder of U.S. Cavalry? They didn't come job hunting. They were just whacked. They were Polish. By definition, that means crazy. They came to fight. Yes, the first breakthrough was the Battle of Saratoga, and that's Kosciuszko. General Gates said he was the engineer of our victory, the first serious victory of the Continental Army, because Washington made a miracle. He made the Americans survive. But this was the first serious breakthrough. 
And you know about General Pulaski, the founder of U.S. Cavalry, madder than the Mad Hatter himself. When the colonial militia broke at Brandywine, it was an ominous date, September 11th. General Washington was left exposed and the Red Coats were advancing. What did Pulaski do? Well, the only, according to him, logical thing that the Polish cavalry would perform, as always, attacked head-on and the Redcoats freaked out. They saved Washington, who was about to die. People like this were not looking for money or titles. They already had titles. They already had been accomplished. Pulaski had fought in the 1769-1772 insurrection against the Russians, the Bar Confederacy. Kosciuszko had fought in the war for independence. And what? They came because they believed America was the same. I'm bringing this up not uh, uh, to um, tickle your curiosity and make you read about that, but because I'm showing you the degree of compatibility, and this is a personal angle, between the old Commonwealth and what is known in the world as the Polish spirit and the United States of America. It's founding its principles. One time a special forces officer came to me, a Muslim, because his dad was an officer of the Shah fought in Vietnam and eventually came to the United States in some exchange program and never returned because of the Khomeini revolution. And he said, oh my God, I just found out about the Polish Tatars. They've been in Poland for about 600 years? Yeah, they're Polish. They're just Muslim. They have fought in every war, insurrection, you name it. Never any problem with them? Well, one time two regiments deserted, offended and not being paid on time because, of course, the parliament has always forgot to vote. That's the nature of democracy, even noble democracy. That's what happens. And then they redefected because the Ottoman Turks had treated them like slaves. And they were nobility, so they could vote. They had no idea what the heck was going on. So yes, there was one serious problem one time in the 17th century. Okay, so that's again the personal. Eventually, a war came that everybody in the Polish service believed had prayed for, World War I. Horrific. But it led to the implosion of three empires and their destruction. The Poles emerged from the ashes after 123 years, restitched their state with significant American help, not only uh, Kumbaya progressive declarations of President Wilson about national self-determination, but also significantly a huge contingent of 25,000, including 25,000 Americans of Polish descent who showed up in Poland to fight in 1919. 
they were a part of the American Expeditionary Force informally. It was totally unprecedented. President Wilson violated the U.S. Constitution and all standing laws to allow the Poles or American Poles to recruit. But they had to go to Canada. That is, their recruitment offices were here about 60,000 volunteers, 60,000 volunteers, about 25,000 went to ended up fighting. They went in 1916, 1917, so even before America joined the war. And the second most important clincher, the contribution of the United States, came from American pilots. Is one of them showed up in Poland with the Hoover Relief Mission. And President Hoover should have a monument in every single town in Europe. Because he, he and his people, and the people of the United States who bankrolled <coughs> are the reasons why everybody didn't die of starvation. First in Western Europe, starting with Belgium, than everywhere else, including Poland. They even went to Bolshevik Russia, where it was, let's put it this way, very hard to operate. But they saved the lives of untold millions. But going back to military factors, one of Hoover's officers bumped into uh, Polish officers, made friends with them, and they said, Guy, we need. Uh, pilots. So Miriam Cooper went back to France, talked to his friends who were bored because they were going to be shipped back home. And they all hopped on the train, went to Poland, volunteered for the Polish Air Force. You all know the story, right? Polish American pilots, no? No, the Kosciuszko squadron? Why do you think we have the Kosciuszko chief? Not only because of chief engineer Tadeusz Kosciuszko Continental Army, but also because of the American pilots. <coughs> when Cooper returned home, <coughs> he became a Hollywood producer. His most famous movie is King Kong. And he said, Polish Bolshevik War. A beast from the East attempts to seduce the naive, gullible maiden of the West. And the gallant pilots ride to the rescue and slaughter the beast, which is exactly what happened in the Polish Bolshevik War. That was Poland's edge. The only time in history the Red Army was defeated strategically in the field, not thwarted initially like the brave Finns did, nothing to detract from Finland's awesome resistance. No, no. The Soviets were defeated strategically and they sued for peace in Poland. And American pilots, American Poles in the infantry made a contribution, serious contribution. See, I knew stories about those wars. They were mostly banned in communist Poland, but I was told that those stories by the, by the survivors who remember. Then there came the unglorious interwar period where uh, the Poles attempted to put 
the Humpty Dumpty of the Commonwealth back together. Um, had there been more time, the effort would have been much more successful, but 20 years is nothing. 20 years were followed with uh, a friendship between Hitler and Stalin. They colluded to put the war on fire. Why? Oh, it's very easy. In 1918, General John Pershing said, we take Berlin, or the Germans won't know that they lost the war. But the liberals, led by David Lloyd George, said, oh, kumbaya, no, the Germans are going to surrender, and they're suing for peace, so let's be kumbaya, hold hands, because we don't want to lose 100,000 people. Because that's what it would have taken to continue the breakthrough. Did the Americans and other allies, under American leadership, achieved on the Western Front. By, no, by uh, no means should we pursue the enemy, crush him, crush his will to resist, and have a victory parade in Berlin. So we didn't do it because of the liberals. And guess what happened? In th within three months, the Germans came up with a fabulous fairy tale. You see, we, Germany, were next to Paris and next to Moscow. But then the Jews and the Freemasons stabbed us in the back. Never mind, it was General Pershing and the American Expeditionary Force who led the charge, broke through the front and surged into uh, German-occupied territory. No, 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 it was the Jews and Freemasons. So, we would like to thank here David Lloyd George and his liberals for the Holocaust and World War II, because the Germans refused to acknowledge that they got their ass kicked. They got their butt kicked. And you were never defeated until you acknowledge that you're defeated. So it took World War II, another horror story. Poland lost 11 million people because there were about 20 million left. And before World War II, there happened about 30 something. We don't know precisely because the census was supposed to have taken place in 1940. About 3 million, maybe over 3 million, were Polish Jews. 3 million, about 3 million dead were Polish Christians. And the rest were just missing, displaced, deported. It's very hard to keep statistics under fire. Just a horror story. With the Jews, it was extraordinary terror. Essentially, everybody was slated to die. With the Christian Poles, it was ordinary terror. So the idea was first to murder the Polish elite, broadly understood. Anybody who showed any leadership potential, if you build a, an irrigation ditch in your village, you should die. Priests, teachers, 
lawyers, doctors, military officers up to the Prince Rajiv, so aristocrats. Anybody educated should die. The rest, well, most of them should be dumped beyond the Urals into Siberia, where they would either die, or most of them would die, except those who'd revert to cannibalism, because obviously if you dump that many people without providing for them, they die. And about five million people should stay in uh, German-occupied Poland to be slaves. They, the children will be allowed to learn how to count to 300 and to sign their name. Every German after victory, Hitler promised, would get a Volkswagen and a Slavic slave. Yes. Well, it doesn't compare with the Holocaust because in the Holocaust everybody was supposed to die. So that's the difference. Not much of a difference metaphysically speaking, because Polishness, the essence of culture evolving over over a thousand years, would turn into an ethnographic joke. Nothing else. They would be just slaves. Carefully selected to eliminate all who had ever served or were taught about the ethos of service. So that was ordinary terror. And that's what all our families experience. The Soviets did essentially the same thing, except they did not want to invoke the Übermensch, the Superman who would rule. Instead, they called this construct homo sovieticus, a Soviet man, which would be essentially the same. Everybody who served was to be exterminated. Some of them were in the cutting forest, for instance. In a series of massacres, about 28,000 of Poland's intelligentsia was killed on the, in the Soviet zone. Similar shootings were going on simultaneously on the Nazi side of partitioned Poland. Gruesome stuff. Social engineering through murder. Uh, incidentally, the Nazis had more frenzy and ferocity because the, they got to occupy those lands longer. But it doesn't mean that the division of victims was easy. Jews, extraordinary terror, non-Jews or Christians, ordinary terror, because the Soviets didn't like the traditional Jewish elites or Jewish institutions or structures either. I always ask, who killed the chief rabbi of the Polish army? His name was Baruch Steinberg, the NKVD, who was shot together with my great uncle, Lieutenant Kazimierz Simeon Hodakiewicz, in the cutting forest. Who killed the chief rabbi of Warsaw? Well, he died in the Gulag. And so did about 100,000 Polish Jews. That is glossed over because of the enormity of the Holocaust, but I don't think we should be silent about it. 
Yet, until this very day, you go to the Holocaust Museum, the Red Army is the army of liberation, like Stalin gave the Dalmanbao Jews. He was just advancing west. If he bumped into anybody who happened to be in a concentration camp and he, his armies overran a concentration camp, then sure, by all means. But the question is, were the Jews free to restart their life? No. Did they get their property back? Uh, 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 oh, yeah. So, from 1945 until the last Soviet trooper left Poland on September 17, 1993, Poland was under the Soviet occupation. Increasingly, it was an occupation by proxy. Local native Polish communists, with after 1956, with increasing autonomy, would run the camp for the Soviets. Of course, there were rebellions again, like in the 19th century, in 1956. 1968, 1970, 1976, and then Solidarity. Solidarity blew up in 1980, and it went on. It had been crushed in martial law in December 1981. It persisted until it re-emerged in 1989. So, this is a brief outline. The second, who teamed up with Ronald Reagan, who physically destroyed the evil empire with the help of Margaret Thatcher. That, that's the framework. Afterwards, this is what happened. Communism transformed itself into post-communism. Ladies and gentlemen, in 1989, there were no free elections because only 30% of the seats were open for contest. The rest were guaranteed to the communists. And the New York Times, until this very day, talks about free elections in Poland. Imagine if the Republicans got to keep 70% of all the seats and 30% were um, open to contest. Would that be a free election? You're kidding me? Again, transformation. Transformation, which resulted not in freedom and democracy, it resulted in changing the shape of the same object into a different shape where the communists became post-communists. There was an orgy of embezzlement throughout the Soviet bloc and the communists came up on top. Now they call themselves liberals, democrats, or nationalists, anti-Semites, whatever you call them. The people with the most money are the people who have the most money under communism. It's very simple. And that's what happened. Okay, so why losing my uh, country twice? Well, and gaining it once. Gaining it once is very easy. Uh, I was, uh, I turned 17. I mean, I turned 18 in the West, and I was in Scotland when strikes broke out in Poland. I decided to go back and went back on September 1st, 1980 to Poland because I thought there would be an anti-communist insurrection and we get to fight. Yeah, boys are stupid. Later, I volunteered for Afghanistan 
I was already in college in California. Ronald Reagan got me out in 82, September 82, from Poland. Oh, nothing spectacular, just bribes <laughs> and connections. Oh yeah, he, he got me out. That was thanks to U.S. Embassy and help of the United States of America. My father was in jail uh, for solidarity. It, so my family didn't come. I came to friends, pre-war, pre-World War II friends of my family, my foster parents in California. The guy who fought at Narvik and then in France and then the Royal Air Forces in England. When I was a child, we knew that we were under Soviet occupation. We referred to the communists not as Poles, which peeves me off to no end whenever I hear it until this very day in America. Oh, the Poles did this. No, no, no. They were communists by definition. If you're a communist, you cannot be Polish because you're an internationalist. Or if you're a traitor, it means you're a renegade. You're no longer an American Benedict Arnold. You are now outside of the national community. So you're not American. So you're not Polish if you're a communist because you're a traitor. You're a stooge of Moscow. So we call them them. We never called them the Polish government. And I was so stupid when I was little that I thought everybody was like that in Poland. Then it turned out it was just a... Later when I grew up, <laughs> it was a tiny band of survivors, usually with the same backgrounds, background, people who served. You see, people whose families used to serve. By this I don't mean to imply that everybody who fought for freedom was mobility. What I mean to imply, Polish style, meaning free farmers, what I mean to say is that anybody who embraced that ethos, including the peasants, turned into farmers. Because peasants are serfs, what Aristotle called innate slaves, what Americans refer to as couch potatoes. If you want to move your butt and volunteer and risk your life, you're free. That ennobles you. You don't need a coat of arms. And that is how the ethos of fighting for freedom was translated onto the people who wanted to move their butt. Of course, if Prince Rajivu is a couch potato, he's no prince, he's not Polish, or American, or anything else, he's just a vegetable. There are various categories of citizens. This is very simple. It has nothing to do with the race, religion. It simply has to do with this. Are you willing to die for a cause that's greater than yourself? In my family, no. That's a no-brainer. That's a rhetorical question. That's why I get along with the United States military so well, because they are unwell. They must be Polish. They volunteered to die for us. And that is the main point. So as a child, we did various things which we thought were normal. And it turned out they were not normal. For instance, in the 60s, we'd go clean the graves of Warsaw rising insurgents. And the secret police would come and chase us away. You know, 
I don't know, I was five or six when my parents started taking me. This was forbidden. What do you mean it's forbidden? It's only decent to remember about those who gave their lives, no? Or not under communism. <laughs> we have no idea that there were any other people who would think otherwise. I had no idea as a child that other people were not taught at home about the Cutting Forest Massacre. The Soviets did that. I remember being um, at, a summer, at a summer camp and I said something like, oh, and then the 27th uh, Volinian Home Army Division clashed with the Germans, eventually was surrounded by the Red Army, disarmed, and some officers were shot, and everybody else went to Siberia. And, other, and there were kids in the camp who said, what? The underground home, how come we didn't have any divisions? I said, what do you mean? There, was a, there were divisions because they restored pre-war Poland in the underground during World War II. For me, not knowing that was like not having a head. It was very shocking for me to meet slaves. I had no idea there were Poles like this. Or going to a, a state-run summer camp, as opposed to, in our community, summer camp, and you didn't get to go to church on Sunday, because the communists were in charge. So, of course, I just jumped the fence and went to church. I didn't know this was abnormal. So, in a way, the country that I lost because of Roosevelt in Yalta selling Poland and the rest of Central and Eastern Europe to Stalin, the country I lost lived on in the stories of my grandparents, parents, and in me. And I had no idea I didn't exist anymore because for so long, as you remember, it's there. Even when I got out of Poland, I had been in the underground with the Independent Students Union. My uh, uncle, Chris Jaszewski, who's now a professor of forestry at the University of Georgia, was in charge of my underground outfit. Uh, even after getting out, we thought we'd get weapons, we'd get parachuted back into Poland and fight the communists. Oh yeah, boys are stupid. I never said anything else. Even then, I thought my country didn't my country existed, I refused to acknowledge that we lost it because of the Yalta Agreement, because of Stalin's armies in Central and Eastern Europe. It, only when I started returning, after 1989, did I realize that the Soviets managed to create a homo sovieticus, not only in Poland, but everywhere else. Not exactly a Soviet man the way the Soviets wanted it, the Soviet man to be, but a Soviet man that negates the continuity of tradition for a thousand years, of culture, of freedom. People who are scared until this very day because the memories of terror 
linger on, people who don't behave the way that I and my family and friends recognize as Polish. This was the hardest blow after 1989, going back there and trying to help. The only place I felt comfortable was the cemetery. There was also hope, namely kids, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, very little ones. Some of them from the so-called old families, so the families who serve, and some of them not, who simply picked up the ethos. But all around there was an orgy of embezzlement, I'll remind you, and cynicism, plus one of the most corrosive things. 40 years of slavery, 40 years of slave drivers, and no punishment to anybody. No property restitution. The communists took banks, industrial enterprises. They're now billionaires, some of them. And what about us? What about 40 acres and a mule, or any decency? Oh, no. I participated and helped out with a variety of projects, some of them including included rehabilitating dead heroes. A few of those heroes, I'm sorry, uh, not all of them were dead. I mean, I'm not sorry they weren't dead. I'm just saying that some of them were alive and they had served long sentences. Some of them had been in Auschwitz or Ravensbrück or somewhere. Nazi camps, they had fought the Nazis, then the communists, ended up in communist jails. So they wanted their sentences cleared. The, the post-communist judges called it rehabilitation. Freedom fighters did not, didn't need any rehabilitation. They needed an apology or just erasure of unjust sentences by the occupying force. Imagine a situation where there was a trial of a secret police major. He had beaten to death a friend's uncle. And we found documents because he thought if he destroyed 15 copies, that was enough. But copy number 16 of his description of the murder during interrogation of an underground editor in 1946 or Polish youth editor, Tadeusz Wabenski, Major Humer decided that there was no evidence, but someone had misfiled one of the copies, one of the reports. So he was put on trial. Imagine a post-communist court with post-communist judges in sympathy with the secret policemen jeering at two uh, insurgent women who survived. Two second lieutenants, Maria Hatowska and Ruta Czaplinska, and Ruta Czaplinska. And the secret policeman, well, uh, the woman was testifying, one of the women was testifying. Uh, she said, this was Mrs. Chaplinska, she said, Homer put me on the table, a second guy stood on my chest, four guys were holding my legs and hands, and Homer hit me in the crotch with a lead chip whip. And the secret police major looked at her and said, you whore. And the judges were, mm, 
Of course the judges were the children of the secret police. What else did you expect? Okay, that was killing my country. That was me losing my country and going to the cemetery to look at the names of the graves. Day in and day out, and to add an insult to injury, in 1994, the Soviets, Polish-speaking Soviets, elected a communist secret police snitch, Alexander Kwasniewski as Poland's president, now in free elections. Why? Well, had, the, had Germany not been denazified by us, the Nazis had been uh, uh, kept in place with their money, propaganda and power, who do you think would be elected five years after the war? This is just natural. Democracy by itself doesn't solve all our problems. What it does is restitution. In the post-totalitarian setting, you have to create a country with an even playing field. Instead, the victims were thrown under the train by George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton. Clinton sent specialists who made the communist candidate lose his weight and wear contact lenses that made his eyes look blue. <laughs> Fabulous. Yes, we are the stupid empire, we're not the evil empire. But, as you know, no justice, no peace. The more justice there is, the more you can reclaim the country. Me, I'm happy. I've been happy since September 1982 when I arrived in California. I basically discovered that what we used to have in the old Commonwealth and in my family is in America. What I've been trying to do is after losing my country physically and then mentally, I've been trying to, old country, to restore some of America now back to Poland. <laughs> That's basically what I've been doing. And, uh, uh, just to conclude, I'd like you to ponder a couple of propositions. Number one, Edmund Burke said, to love my country, it must be lovely. Are you going to love Pol Pot's Korea, uh, Cambodia just because you're Khmer? Are you going to love? Are you going to love Germany when it turns into the Third Reich? Are you going to love Russia when it turns into the Soviet Union? Well, for many people, including of the old elites, well, yeah, yeah, because they lived by another adage, not by Edmund Burke's. They lived by the adage that admonish them, my country right or wrong? Well, I'm sorry when it's wrong. Is it still my country? <laughs> yes? Yes? And here is another, another thing to ponder. Marshal Joseph Kielsuski, a socialist of Poland and one of uh, military fighters, independence leaders, said to be defeated but not to surrender is victory. And that's what we lived by under the communist occupation. It's freedom that renders this difficult. 
because you win and the victory is hollow if there is no justice. And justice is restitution, punishment of the wicked, like the Nuremberg trial. None of the communist countries, none of them has had a Nuremberg. There hasn't been the time of reckoning. What you see, for instance, in Hungary and Poland now, those are very awkward attempts to achieve some kind of closure on the period. We, um, in academia, are supposed to be dispassionate. But as someone said, it's people who make history, not history, that makes people. I think Harry Truman. So, certain lessons from this are universal. They are universal because they can obtain at any place. Really? You really want to have a place like this? Or do you want to have a lovely place? And what makes you loyal? What makes you loyal is a set of rules that we would like to see as immutable set of rules of decency, love, fairness, beauty and the truth. That is what made the reactionary French monarchists loathe the crowds. This bush, the corner. And they didn't care that Marshal Petain promised national rejuvenation, getting rid of communists and making everything hunky-dory for France again. In other words, uh, reversing the revolution in France. They didn't care. They, of course, identify with some of the sentiments, but how can you be a conservative Catholic monarchist and agree to the Nazis. Well, you can't, just like you can't agree to the communists. They are antithetical to what a free people stand for. Thank you very much. If you have any questions, I don't know. Go ahead. My name is Matthew Peoria. Um, coming forward to present day, uh -huh. uh, what's your feelings on the the United States? The troop presence in Poland, um, should it increase or...? Well, uh, we, uh, when I was a child, we had a joke. How do you free Poland from the Soviets? Oh, it's easy. Proclaim a war against the United States and surrender the following day. The Americans will come occupy us. So, um, in our milieu, there has long been a sentiment which, after 1989, emerged for first very bashfully because the post-communist elites, various leftists and liberal liberals, disparaged it, was that the only guarantee of Poland's freedom is America's presence. Why? Because America is the most benevolent of all imperialists. 
Would you rather be under the boot of Moscow, Berlin, or Washington, D.C.? Of course, the stupid part. Not the evil one. This is as simple as that. That's what it boils down to. Eventually, a large chunk of public opinion has been convinced. And the polls, more or many polls, look forward to America's commitment. They don't understand incrementalism. They would like, forge Trump overnight. That can only happen if America fights a war, wins it in states, like in Korea. There's a building you will come theory, too. Uh, yes, there's also a theory of um, a scary theory. Even of, those bases after were yes, incrementally grouped. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I understand. I actually have been writing about it for decades. If you look at Estonia, we fly a company from Italy on a rotational basis. So the Estonians start getting annoyed because once one company leaves, another arrives, they always have, they always have to welcome them. Yes, yes, that's the point. Meaning when one company leaves, it gets on the same plane on which a new company has just arrived, which means they are permanent. What, um, what we don't have is families. There are no better hostages than families. Ask the South Koreans, or even Okinawans who protest so much against American presence. This is a tripwire. American troops won't make much difference if North Korea's army, which is fifth largest in the wor world, surges across the border. Except it, it'll really upset the American people if the North Koreans overrun American posts, including housing with women and children from the United States of America. That'll be a disaster for North Korea or China or anybody else. That is the main value of a scattering of troops. But, but plus. Uh, Please look at the composition of American troops, say in Poland, logistical troops, which is where it all starts, and the Poles don't get it. They want it now, or they don't want it at all. Maybe it'll provoke a nuclear war. Well, NATO's expansion has been extremely successful because Putin hasn't invaded. Everybody said, oh, it's dangerous, there will be invasions, but no, no, Georgia and Ukraine, and other places, but not Central and Eastern Europe. That actually has worked out fine so far. Do we need our presence, American presence? Well, history dictates that any time we withdraw and neglect, we have to re-engage and it costs us much more in men, material and treasure. I really didn't like how the Obama administration sent wrong signals and maltreated the Japanese. And I knew what was coming. 
for the first time in history, the Japanese, since World War II, the Japanese are engaged in combat in South Sudan. They changed their constitution. They also have altered their navy. They have this helicopter carrier that can very easily accommodate Harrier planes. I knew there was a, in, an important sign 10 years ago, maybe 10 years ago, I don't remember exactly, but about 10 years ago, there was a naval conference in Australia. And the Chinese were bug-mouthing the Japanese. So there were naval officers from all Pacific nations. And the Chinese were themselves. And the Japanese were polite themselves, which means you talk more, I'll kill you very soon. And they were just sitting there. And the Chinese went overboard. The Japanese admiral stood up and the Japanese filed out for the first time in history. They had been very polite and passive. They appeared passive. Well, please don't upset the Japanese. I have this vision, not only of a camcorder, but I have a vision of uh, the drones that Japan has acquired from us and improved it vastly. So I have a vision of three million drones, nuclear-tipped, flying into China. The Indians don't have anything to worry about. Because Japan can do it if it gets very worried about various shenanigans. It can. Because that's what the Japanese have been doing. I have Japanese family through marriage. So I know more than all you round eyes know. Oh yeah. Don't mess with the Japanese. I'm glad they're on our side. We gave them nuclear material. Back when Mao was acting up in the 60s, they still have it. They also produce enough. Of course, they have to give it up every year. But maybe the Brits who usually pick it up and deliver it for storage won't show up and the Japanese will have wherewithal to take care of China. But do we want it to be that way? Of course not. But I'm just saying, keep that in mind. Yes, sir. Speaking of uh, balance of power in the uh, Asia-Pacific, I'm referring to China. Right. So you think Japan should go nuclear? Uh, mm, Within the next uh, so long as it's three or five years, maybe? Obama is no longer president. Uh, Obama actually, or somebody around Obama got scared and we did move our weapons to Guam to send a signal which was a belated gesture, but an important one. I don't think anybody should go necessarily nuclear among our allies, so long as the United States can be relied upon, but to have nuclear infrastructure and capabilities, of course for peaceful reasons, I've been telling the Poles for the past 30 years they should have peaceful nuclear power. Because then neither Berlin nor Moscow would march. The Poles are not imperialists, they wouldn't attack anybody unless attacked. And that's a great deterrent. It's one of the paradoxes of history that the most deadly weapon uh, managed to keep peace during the Cold War. Actually, now too. It's the greatest peacekeeper ever. We have proxy wars and stuff, but 
MOOCs are very useful. I believe that uh, in order to solve the North Korean crisis, we may have to go through China to do that. Of course, North Korea is a rabid, so unpredictable in a way, a lapdog of China, and China unleashes it or fails to cage it because it's a tool of statecraft. It's a sideshow. When the North Koreans act crazy, this is what Lenin and others did to the Soviets during the Cold War or after the formation of the Soviet Union, it's called alternates. You blackmail people by acting crazy, and then the West would pay, send assistance, and you would build up a new generation of weapons and start acting up crazy again and get paid again. So that's what the North Koreans have been doing. It's an alternate, you know, pretending to be reasonable and peaceful uh, until the, the, the assistance arrives and allows you to expand your military capacity and then you go back to being crazy. So I don't think Japan's going nuclear will help uh, in this capacity. Here you have to, uh, I think, use the diplomatic weapon of uh, not caring and not helping and not succumbing to the blackmail. But Japan ought to have a capacity, just like India does, have a capacity just in case India, of course, has another problem because a part of India calls itself Pakistan and it hates India. <laughs> so that's, that's uh, and the Chinese like that. So um, India thought it would go nuclear and it did. Japan doesn't have to, so long as the United States is uh, aware of what's going on. Occasionally we'll have presidents like Obama, Kumbaya, leading from behind. Uh, and that's dangerous because people like Putin or the Chinese misread it for being wimpy. And remember, in politics, nothing matters more than perception. My coping mechanism is jokes. That also guarantees that important people don't feel threatened and at least some of what I'm saying penetrates. And when you have uh, countries playing that game, see, and in particular the United States of America, you have to be extremely careful. So no, I would, um, if I if I had a magic wand, I'd, I'd send a squad to uh, the White House to snatch President Trump's iPhone, so he couldn't win. Because that sends oftentimes strange signals to our allies and its spokespeople. What they don't understand is he tweets just like on domestic issues and then usually forgets unless somebody is perceived by him as stepping on his toes. But you know. Anyway, everybody has quirks. Obama was too cool, this guy is too quick on the draw with electronic social media. <laughs>
and then we'll have another president, whoever she is, <laughs> and then we'll have another quirk. So long as um, certain inalien inalienable rights are supported, and so long as certain um, rules are followed on the international arena, Japan doesn't need to go nuclear, because that would mean that Japan again retreats to unilateralism, and as always, the Japanese would clam up, and the world would consider Japan now. Because the Japanese are not warm fuzzies, so they are not very good at explaining why they do certain things. They are even worse than the Vatican, and that's saying something. <laughs> the, uh, you mentioned the movement of weapons to Guam. Yes. That was uh, more of a strategic messaging yeah. to our allies, not to our embassy. Right, right, right. It was to tell Japan the umbrella is still covering you. Yes, yes. Please, this please was don't break out. To assuage the Japanese, absolutely. The North Koreans didn't care. Yeah, it wasn't. Because they thought they could do anything with impunity, because the United States has no guts. Blah, 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 blah. Until someone tweeted Rocket Man. Yes. Then they wanted to talk to us. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes that tweet is good. Oh, of course. I'm not saying <laughs> there should be a total ban, but uh, verbal diarrhea, or I'm sorry, Twitter diarrhea, is, it's great for um, the domestic opposition because they get all bent out of shape and forget about what they should focus on. And they're all over the map. So, yes. I don't know if it's intentional by the president. <laughs> or it's just what what happens, but um, it's not received calmly outside, including by our allies. You see, you know what's funny is how many years ago was it when we said it was wrong to eat, read others' mail <laughs> because those were rules, and if you did, you offended people. Yeah. So times change and methods change and. Before long, the, the Twitter thing will be a, a foregone norm and we'll be onto something else. Yeah, of course, of course. Anyway, thank you very much for your patience.